Thank God that he is a God who is with us and calls us to walk with him and to abide in him. You know, one of the most central truths of the Christian faith, perhaps the most central truth of our faith, is that God offers salvation to us by his grace. Unlike all the other major religions of the world, the scriptures do not teach that we can earn salvation or that we can earn forgiveness before God, that we can earn eternal life by what we, what we do. Now hear me on this. God's primary concern is not how good you are. God's primary concern is not how good you are. Despite popular opinion, the scriptures do not teach that at the end of your life, God will weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that he will allow you entrance into to heaven. We must never lose sight of the fact that the God of the scriptures, the one and only God, the God that we worship is a God who extends salvation to us by grace through faith in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. But even so, we must also know that that does not mean that we can live however we want to. In fact, those that truly understand the grace of God, who recognize the love of God that he has shown us, the forgiveness of sins that he offers us through Christ, are then compelled or motivated by that same grace to live lives that honor him, lives that are pleasing to him. And not only do lives of obedience reflect an understanding of God's love for us, but I believe that the scriptures also teach that our actions have a direct impact on what God may entrust to us. In other words, though we are all saved by grace through faith in Christ, we are not all given the same role or the same responsibility in God's program. By God's program, I mean His agenda, His plan, what God has been doing and what God is doing in the world. And so as we look at the Scriptures today, I think that we will see that our actions do determine our part in the plan of God. Though we are not saved by our actions, it was left up to us and what we do, what we merit on our own. The Scriptures are clear that all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory, all fall short of His standard, but our actions do determine our part in the plan of God. Remember that Jesus once told a story, a parable, a hypothetical story about a master who uh, gave some bags of gold, also known as the parable of the talents, gave some, some money to his servants. And then he went away for a while and he came back and to the servants that had used that money wisely uh, the master said these words recorded in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So friends, I don't know about you, but I want to be found faithful at the end of this life with what God has entrusted to me. I want to be faithful with the role and the responsibilities, and the investments that God has in, entrusted to me. And as we open the scriptures today, I think we will see some examples of men who were faithful 
And in contrast, we'll see others who were not and how each of their actions and their lives and their character determined the part that not only they, but even their descendants played in the role of God. In other words, our past actions, our past faithfulness or lack thereof impacts our present situation and even our future for the glory of God. So let me invite you to open God's word with me this morning to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, near the end of that book, Genesis chapter 49. And here at Meadowbrook, we believe that all of the scriptures, the entire uh, collection known as the Bible is inspired. It was written by human authors who were inspired by God's spirit to to write these words. And for that reason, we often teach and, and preach from sections of Scripture, often walking through books or lengthy sections, because we believe that every passage of Scripture holds life-transforming truths that God desires us as His people to know and to live in light of. So if you're joining us today for the first time, or perhaps for the first time in quite some time, we're picking up right where we left off. And here we are in Genesis chapter 49. And Nearing the end of this book, we'll finish it next week and then we'll go in a different direction. But let me invite you to open the scriptures with me to Genesis chapter 49. And as you find your place there, join me standing out of reverence for the one whose word it is that we are reading. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 1, God's word reads this way. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob, listen to your father Israel. Remember that Israel was another name that God had given Jacob. Verse 3, Reuben, he says, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they please. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Now skip with me to the end of this section, to verse 28. We're going to come back and look at some of the verses in between, But the author of Genesis tells us now, after Jacob had blessed each of his sons, verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Giving each of his sons the blessing appropriate to him. I think that's a key phrase, a key word appropriate for our understanding of this passage today. But let me invite you to bow with me in prayer as we seek God's guidance. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather today as your church, to come alongside other believers and perhaps even other not yet believers and to open your word and to hear from you. So Lord, we ask that you would lead us now, that you would guide us by your spirit and understanding the truths of your word and that our lives would be dramatically transformed as a result that we might faithfully know and walk with you for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, you may be seated. There's a number of truths that I hope we'll see from God's word 
today, and if you want to follow along, there's a sermon outline in your worship guide. And the first broad truth, the overarching general truth that I think we see from the scriptures today is that our actions determine our part in the plan of God. Our actions determine our part, the role that we play in the overarching plan of God. And then there's another very general truth as well that we see right here through the actions and the words of Jacob. And that is this, it's that God reveals the future of his people. God reveals the future of his people. And if God reveals the future of his people, it goes without saying that God knows the future of his people. God knows and reveals the future of his people. And certainly we see that through his word, that he has revealed what has taken place and what will take place for his people in the days and the years and eternity to come. But right here in verse 1 of this passage, Jacob is portrayed as on his deathbed. It's in his final days and he tells his sons, gather around. Come here, come close so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. He's on his deathbed and he's preparing to, to speak with his sons to give them some important words and really even words of instruction. You know, I'll never forget the final conversation that I had with my grandfather just days before he passed away from pancreatic cancer. I remember talking with him on the telephone, and as the cancer took its toll on his body, he could barely muster enough strength to softly say over the phone, I love you. Now he was departing. He knew he was in his final days. He knew he was on his way out. He wanted me to remember, to always remember that he loved me. And here is Jacob in his final days on his deathbed. And likewise, he calls his sons to gather around because he has some important words to tell them. And these are not just words or well wishes. These are words that have been carefully crafted and spoken on the basis of what he has observed in their lives, the basis of his evaluation of their character, and probably most important, on the basis of what God has revealed to him. So this is more than just words. These are more than just well wishes. There's a prophetic element to them as they concern days to come. What will take place? And can you imagine the anticipation of these sons? Their dad and his family says, come, gather around. Let me tell you what is going to take place in your life and in the lives of your descendants in the days to come. And presumably these were all spoken in front of the other sons. What a sobering experience. It sort of reminds me of a child who is hanging on every word of a story that a parent or a grandparent is telling them about the way things used to be, about their experience growing up, and a child hanging on every word, using their God-given imagination to imagine what it would be like to have lived in that story. Well, here are these grown sons not imagining what it would be like, but imagining what it's going to be like, hanging on every word because they want to know what is going to take place. And it's into this context that 
their father speaks. It's in this context that God uses Jacob to reveal the future of his people. And there are several truths that are conveyed throughout this story that reinforce that general truth that our actions determine our part in the plan of God. And the first of those we see from the oldest three sons, and that is this. It's that sin has lasting consequences and often affects future generations. Sin has lasting consequences and often affects future generations. And by sin, I mean anything that is rebellion against God, anything that we do that is dishonoring to God or anything that we don't do that God would have us do. Sin has lasting consequences that often affects future generations. I think for most of us, it's no secret that there are consequences to, to sin. But how often do we minimize those consequences? Sometimes we even know what they are and we still choose to, to do something or to think something or to say something that is dishonoring to God. Perhaps other times we think, well, it's, it's my life. I should be able to do with my life or live my life however I want, not realizing that, that our actions have an impact on others. Most often those who are closest to us, even our very children, even if our sinful actions don't have a direct impact on our children, they certainly are watching us and learning from us and learning how to think and to act and to speak from us. If you've forgotten that truth, just hang around a toddler for a little while. He's learning to talk and quickly see that they repeat everything that you say. Our actions determine our part in the plan of, of God. So on this Father's Day, let's be reminded of the importance of leaving a Christ-like legacy for the generations that follow. So here is, is Reuben, the firstborn, the first one that Jacob addresses. Standing first in line for the inheritance, that culture in a privileged position who would have received the greatest portion of the inheritance and the greatest blessing from his, his father. And his father begins by honoring and respecting and pointing out certain characteristics in Reuben's life. But then the conversation quickly goes in a different direction. For he remembers that Reuben has been characterized by immorality. Reuben's immoral actions are recorded in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. And so his father describes him as turbulent waters. In other words, a man of impulse who is unfit for spiritual leadership. And immorality often removes people from positions of spiritual leadership. We don't have to look far to see this in the culture today, that immorality often removes people who are in prominent positions, positions of spiritual leadership or Christian leadership or leadership in the church today, are removed from that position on the basis of their engagement in immorality, reminding us, friends, that no one is immune from temptation when it comes to immorality. So brothers and sisters, fellow believers in Christ, let's run from immorality. Let's flee immorality. If you want to be used by God, if you want to play a significant role in the overarching plan and purposes of, of God, and if you know that God, believe me, you want to be part of what He is doing, if you want to, to do so, run from immorality. And next, Jacob turns to the second and 
third oldest sons. He turns his attention to Simeon and to Levi. He describes them in negative terms as well, remembering that they had acted out of anger and revenge. They reacted to the evil that was done on their sister by the people of Shechem. And they had retaliated. They had responded to evil with greater evil, being characterized by uncontrollable anger and violence and pride. And uncontrolled anger and violence are incompatible with spiritual leadership as well. Immorality often removes people from positions of spiritual leadership. And uncontrolled anger and violence are also incompatible with spiritual leadership. Friends, sin has lasting consequences. Consequences that often extend to future generations. But even so, know that God is not unjust. The God that we serve, the one and only God, the God of the Scriptures, is a gracious God. And even though the sins of these first three sons had devastating results in their own lives, in the lives of their family, in the lives of their offspring, God's promises were still for them. In fact, all of the tribes would still see fulfillment of God's promises to their ancestors, to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, as they would all enter into the promised land. Our actions determine our part in the plan of God. So likewise, church, perhaps you've been running from God. Perhaps you've been going your own way. Perhaps you've been living for yourself. Perhaps you've been living as a citizen of this world rather than a citizen of God's kingdom. Let me urge you on the basis of the truth of God's word to return to God. To run after the God who is patient, who is slow to anger and gracious and compassionate with his people. For even though these first three sons forfeited their roles of spiritual leadership, the next son, Judah, received a different blessing entirely. In fact, we learn from Jacob's words to Judah that God graciously entrusts leadership to the responsible. God graciously entrusts leadership to the responsible. So let's look at what Jacob said to Judah back at Genesis chapter 49, picking up in verse 8. Jacob said, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Images, metaphors are being used here to portray the character of Judah, which will become the character of his offspring, and what is going to take place in the generations that follow. In other words, Judah will be characterized by power and strength that demands respect from others. Continuing in verse 10, he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he to whom it belongs shall come, the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. This is a picture of abundance, of extravagance. Verse 12, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. God graciously entrusts leadership to the responsible. But if you remember this story, Judah was not always so responsible. 
In fact, at one time, Judah had been characterized by the same type of immorality and selfishness and disregard for justice as his older brothers. But God did a great work of transformation in his life, and he became a faithful son and a selfless servant, reminding us, indeed, that God is gracious and that God is patient with us. And that God doesn't give up on us, that he continually works to transform us by his grace and by the power of his spirit. But we see two truths here, very briefly, about Judah's descendants. First, that Judah will be a mighty leader. Judah will be a mighty leader, will earn honor and respect from surrounding tribes and surrounding peoples. And not only so, but he will also become the royal tribe. In other words, kings will come from Judah's lineage, presumably as a result of his faithfulness and, his, and of his obedience to God. And indeed, the great kings of Israel, kings like David and Solomon, would come through Judah's lineage, but there would be another king who would be greater than any king to come before and any king to come after who would also come through Judah's lineage. And he is the one who is subtly alluded to in verse 10, the one to whom the scepter and the ruler's staff belong. He will be the one who demands obedience from the nations. From Judah will come kings and the king. Friends, Judah will be a mighty leader. And from Judah, at some time in the future when this is being written, from Judah will come kings and the king. And I'm not talking about Elvis. I'm not talking about LeBron James. I'm talking about King Jesus, the one whom Revelation chapter 5 describes as the lion of the tribe of Judah, who with his blood purchased persons from Every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. From Judah will come kings and the kings. So Judah played a significant role in the unfolding plan of God as a result of his faithfulness and his devotion and his obedience to God. Our actions determine our part in the plan of God. And if you remember from the weeks Leading up to this point of this story, perhaps if you're familiar with the story, you remember from your time in this story that the other character, the other son who played a positive role, a prominent role in the unfolding of God's plan besides Judah was Joseph. And from Joseph's story and from Jacob's words directed to Joseph, we learn that those who patiently endure opposition by trusting in God experience his blessing. Those who patiently endure opposition by trusting in God experience his blessing. So let's look at some of those words from Jacob to his beloved son, Joseph. Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 22. So Jacob says, Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. Again, a picture of abundance. Verse 23, with bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you. So the life of Joseph was not an easy life. 
was a difficult life. Joseph encountered great opposition. And we don't have time to retrace the story or to retrace all those steps. But remember, Joseph was a faithful son and a faithful servant to his master. But he was treated very harshly, very unjustly, despite his faithfulness. But even so, Joseph remained faithful to God. And as a result, Joseph was defended and blessed by God. So Joseph encountered great opposition, but Joseph was defended and blessed by God. His actions determined his part in the plan of God. He was rescued by God and used by God in an extraordinary way to deliver God's people ultimately so that they could be a blessing to the nations of the world. And this would be a pattern that would follow for generations to follow on the basis of Joseph's character. And prominent biblical characters like Gideon and Joshua would come through Joseph's descendants. Joseph was blessed on the basis of his faithfulness to God. And let me pause a minute and say, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by, by blessed? What, what is a blessing according to, to Scripture? Well, a blessing according to God's Word is a gift from God. It's not something that's earned. It's not something that's deserved. It's a gift of God's grace. It's different from a, from a wage or a payment. It's maybe a material thing, but certainly not always a material thing. In fact, the Scriptures teach that the greatest blessings for God's people are spiritual things, things like salvation and joy and peace with God. And indeed, often those who have been faithful to God experience the greatest blessing. But even so... These blessings are a gift from God, gifts of God's grace. And Joseph and Judah were especially blessed by God. And as a result, Judah's descendants became the predominant tribe of the southern kingdom. And Joseph's descendants became the predominant tribe of the northern kingdom. Our actions determine our part in the plan of God. I want us to pause for a moment. Because before we dismiss this story as just some ancient story about people in another day and another time, we need to think through the truths of this passage as they relate to our own lives. Because if our actions really do determine our part in the plan of God, then it only makes sense that we as people of faith want to examine and reflect on our own actions, on the way that we are living our lives. So three questions to guide us in that process. Firstly, Ask yourself, on the basis of the truth of God's word, what does God desire me to stop? What does God desire me to, to stop? Ask God to reveal things in your own life. Let's all ask God to reveal sin in our own lives. Perhaps sin that is a blind spot in our lives, that is dishonoring to him. Or perhaps God's spirit has already revealed that to you. After all, that is a function, one of the primary functions of His Spirit, but you're struggling to, to do just that, struggling to give that, that up. Perhaps for you it is immorality, like it was for Reuben. It's displayed through extramarital relationship or through an addiction to pornography or through a relationship that's simply not pleasing to the Lord. God desires your purity and my purity as a reflection of his faithfulness and his devotion and his love for his bride, which is the church. 
Or perhaps for you it is uncontrollable anger like it was for Simeon and Levi. It's displayed through a tone that is not honoring to God that often overflows into your relationships, your relationship with your spouse or your children. Perhaps for you it's something else entirely. Let's all ask God what He desires for us to stop, what He desires for us to give up so that our lives will be more honoring to Him, more pleasing to Him as His people. And secondly, let's ask ourselves, what does God desire me to do? What does God desire me to stop and what does God desire me to do? What does faithfulness to God look like in your life, in your circumstances, circumstances into which God has placed you? What does it look like for you and for me to imitate the character of Joseph and of of Judah? Perhaps God wants us to spend less time pursuing selfish interests and to spend more time with Him. Perhaps God wants us to give greater treasure and time and energy toward relationships and causes that exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Christ, perhaps God is leading you to befriend a neighbor for the sake of sharing the love of Christ with them. Perhaps God is leading you to begin saving now for a mission trip next year. Or perhaps God is simply leading you to to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Let's ask ourselves, what does God desire me to stop? What does God desire me to do? And finally, what does God desire me to believe? What does God desire me to believe that would make my life more honoring to Him, more exalting to His name. Perhaps you know what God desires you to stop. Perhaps you know what God desires you to do, but, but taking that step is still a struggle, still very difficult. You're unsure. You want to go your own way. Well, maybe God is leading you to step out and to display greater trust in Him, greater faith in Him as you follow His leadership. Church, still for others, there may be some gathered today who say, I didn't even know God had a plan. Certainly would have never thought that God had a plan that involved my my life. I want you to know that based upon the scriptures today, that God indeed has a plan, that He is sovereign, that He is Lord, and that His plan is good, and He has plans for you. Plans that are for your overwhelming good and for His great glory. And I want you to know, I would cherish the opportunity to talk to you about His plans. About what I believe the Scriptures convey about who He is and what He desires for us. Love the opportunity to meet with you, to discuss these things with you. So know that certainly available to do that immediately following the service out in the foyer. Come and grab me if you have questions to that end or if I can pray with you to that end or any other time. Let's pause and pray and thank God for His Word and invite Him to to lead us to respond in a way that's appropriate and pleasing to Him. Father, we thank You for This day, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this hour that your people come together to worship you for you are worthy. Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed to us, that you have preserved by your spirit and that you have entrusted to us as your people. Father, continue working in each of us, applying the truths of your word. 
Father, increase our faith where we're hesitant to believe. Father, I pray that you would lead each of us to live lives that glorify you, that are characterized by faithfulness to Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, and our Lord. Lord, lead us now to respond in a way that's honoring to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.